Welcome to Inspiration and Isolation. This is a weekly conversation with Alaska artists about weathering isolation during the COVID-19 pandemic and what strategies and perspectives artists offer to manage this time. I'm Asia Freeman, Artistic Director of Mill Street Art Center in Homer, and I've lived here since infancy as a long-term guest of this land, a borderland of the Denina and Supiak people. I'm delighted you've joined us. I'll be asking questions of the guests and you are welcome to as well. You can write them in the chat box feature in your Zoom window if you, um, if you would like and indicate if you're willing to ask them aloud or not um, and you'll be invited to do so by unmuting your microphone. So the conversation is recorded and will be shared on Benell's uh, podcast at benellarts.org. You can also see all the previous conversations there as well. Let me introduce our guest, Bruce Farnsworth. He has already announced himself and uh, Sheila Wine. Bruce Farnsworth is an Anchorage-based writer and artist and community organizer. He founded and directed MTS Gallery in Anchorage and The Light Brigade, a multimedia collaboration of artists who stage site-specific art interventions in the built and natural environment. Bruce is co-lead of the Pan-Arctic Eight Boxes Project. He was the recipient of the first ever President's Award from the Rasmussen Foundation an award created by the foundation's president and CEO to honor his work in neighborhood revitalization through the arts. Sheila Wine is a visual artist based in Anchorage. Her studio work has been shown across the state, the lower 48 and overseas. Her work is in the permanent collections of several Alaskan museums, and she has designed over 20 public artworks. Wine has worked as a set designer with theater companies in Alaska and the Northwest, and she's a core member of the Light Brigade. Wine has been awarded a National NEA TGC Fellowship in Set Design, a Rasmussen Artist Fellowship, and grants from the Alaska State Council on the Arts, the NASE Development Program, the Andy Warhol and Rockefeller Foundations, as well as the Governor's Award for Individual Artists. So let's start this conversation by updating us, if you, you two will, on the projects you've been doing in the past six months to a year. Just give us a sense of what life was like before COVID-19. Go, Bruce. Oh. Um, well, Sheila will maybe talk a little bit about a project that we started working on together along with some other artists from outside of Alaska um, and that we're actually continuing, but there's been some big changes into the scheduling and so on uh, with that project. But I've been involved primarily in a one major project, um, an artist friend um, by the name of John Hurst, who's based here in Anchorage. And I started a, an art group that we call um, track and field and our first project under the auspices of this art group is called the eight boxes project it's a pretty large scale panartic project involving collaborators in both artistic and institutional um in all of the eight arctic nations and without really going into all of the details of like what the project's goals and and um aspirations are Needless to say, it involved a lot of travel and a lot of really complicated logistics. And we had a, um, we had a go live date planned for next spring, right around this time, actually, in kind of late April, mid to late April of 2021. And the biggest impact of the, of the current pandemic has really been that that's not gonna happen at least not on that timeline. Um, too many of the kind of milestones that are on our, built into our project timeline have had to be just pushed way back because of, of changes. A, a planned trip to Iceland next month, um, for example, to really no negotiate some details with the city of Akureyri in Northern Iceland has been postponed to some indefinite date in the future. Uh, one of our 
kind of plan target uh, primary targets as a as a funding partner in the project um, has been affected by the COVID-19 pandemic financially and and so that's been also you know kind of put on the back burner so um, yeah that's been a big change and and I don't know if it's a very interesting topic but um, but uh, I, I see both positive and negative things about the about the changes one thing's for sure there's a little less time pressure like on me on a day-to-day -day basis because of just kind of the the finalization of the project being a little bit undetermined at this point and for me previously 2019 was just a crazy year it was really really busy um uh first half of the year was involved in uh completing a piece called Ingenieur for the UAA uh, engineering building. And um, right in the middle of that, um, Bruce and Cheryl and I spent 21 days floating the Colorado River down through the Grand Canyon, which was really fantastic, but also informed me a lot about how to finish this piece that, that I needed to complete. And so I had to come back and like change a whole bunch of stuff. So um, there was that. Uh, I did some uh, upcycled furniture for Seed Lab for the museum later in the year, and then also had another uh, public art installation for the Anchorage School District that um, I worked on through uh, October, no, no, November, December, and January, and then and then COVID. And one of the pieces that Bruce and I are working on together with uh, Becky Kendall and Chris Jetty, the, the old band of uh, Light Brigade people, is a piece called Time Expired. And that was going to be in the North by North uh, Museum uh, event. And that's been rescheduled tentatively to sometime this fall. So we're still gathering together to talk through details of that. Wow, so lots of adjusting for both of you. Um, something else that's very significant, you two have been collaborating for years, not only through the large-scale Anchorage-based interventions of Light Brigade, but also through the business of Sheila's art installation. Um, could, you, could you talk about how you two have collaborated? For example, maybe, maybe Bruce could talk about how you've collaborated in the Light Brigade, and, and Sheila, could you talk about how um, Bruce supports your work, um, your your percent uh, for artworks? Yeah, um, uh, Bruce, I hire as my project manager on public artworks, um, just because I I seem to have kind of a Finch brain. I can remember five things, but after five, it it everything gets confused. <laughs> And so he really has taken on uh, uh, the, the coordination of, of scheduling and contacting the correct people and doing all that so I can focus more on, on the, the creation of the work and the, the internal studio schedule. And, and that's just been a great assistance for me in um, having somebody like him to, to manage certain aspects of these projects which some of these projects, you know, they go on for over a year. So it's, it's really been helpful to have him do that for me. Um, trying to think when, I'm trying to think when, when, when did we sort of formally um, kind of incorporate the, the Light Brigade as an art group? I think it was in like 2000 and, well, we started well, the first time Sheila and I ever actually collaborated on a large scale um, kind of time based work of art was when we were invited when I was invited to participate in a project that was sponsored by the International Gallery back in I think it was probably 2000 and maybe as early as 2009. Um, and we ended up 
working with the Momentum Dance Collective and a group of other like technicians and artists to create a <clears throat> a one-time only event that took place in the the open bays of the J.C. Penney parking garage, and and that just kind of led to that inspired us to to want to do more of that kind of site-specific work that was that was time-based, and we kind of worked out a um, a set of what um, a set of kind of limit limitations that we imposed on ourselves in order to be able to kind of know what our um, what our parameters were and to keep us probably from getting so carried away that that failure would be an automatic uh, outcome of, of these works because we always thought of the largest scale thing we possibly could. And if it weren't for some of these, uh, these dogmas, as we call them, stealing a term um, that, uh, that, an, that an earlier art group, a group of filmmakers in Northern Europe used to describe their, their work. We, we imposed a set of dogmas that kept us um, kind of, I think with our, kept us a little bit tethered to, to planet Earth. And that just led to a series of work that we did between um, then 2009 and culminating in the, in the last piece that we actually did that was formerly a, a light brigade work was what was it in it would have been um elderberry park no the last one. Oh no no the museum was after the, the we we did a piece called over beyond across through that took place on the the museum facade and that was in the um fall of 2013. Mm -hmm. oh we did Elderberry Park after that. Yeah, you're right. That was 2004. And, that, and that's, how, that's how the Church of Love actually came into existence. Yeah, okay, that's right. You're right. You should have asked Sheila that question and me the other question. <coughs> that's great. It's, it's a wonderful kind of like um, context for how you two think and, and have worked. Um, well, can I say one so, of the... One other thing about the Light Brigade, not so much its history, that's, that's a matter of record and, and could be actually looked up, but what was really interesting about it was, it was the first real full-on collaboration um, that I personally had, had ever undertaken that was just strictly art-based. And, um, and, and one of the things that was complicated was just working out kind of the philosophy of it because artists have a tendency you know there are obviously artists that really are naturally drawn to the idea of collaboration but pro probably the majority of artists just find it kind of an, an abhorrent idea because it re it requires this sublimation of their own uh vision and, and a, there's a lot of back and forth and compromise and, 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 and acceptance and change and all of that involved in it. And artists have a tendency to be pretty single-minded, uh, uh, which is a, a, both a strength and a, and a weakness and, and, and artists often have pretty sizable egos, as we all know, and are just generally not to be trusted. Speak for yourself. <laughs> And uh, so, so the idea of bringing a group of artists together to make a series of collaborative work is just a big challenge. And, and I think we did it through, through really recognizing that everybody brought very, very specific and distinct different strengths to the process. Mm -hmm. And we didn't have any, and we just flattened the hierarchy. We, uh, we just uh, took the old kind of, because the closest thing to the kind of work we were doing in another art form was probably th live theater. But live theater is very hierarchical in its, you know, and usually in its kind of, um, in its uh, decision-making structures, almost kind of militaristic in a lot of ways. And we knew that wasn't going to work for us. So we just said, everybody's equal. And just because you happen to have a background in say, um, uh, composition, musical composition or whatever, that doesn't mean that you have the sole voice on everything that takes place within, you know, our process that involves music. Everybody, everybody here is an artist. Everybody here has taste and discretion and, 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 and kind of aesthetic sensibility. And we want to just let everybody weigh in on everything. And that was sort of the secret to that. And it worked. 
I think it worked pretty well. It was the interesting thing about it too, in a lot of ways. Um, I want to remind our our um, participants, all of you, that you know you're welcome to to ask questions, which um, you you may interject or write in the chat feature on the sidelines, um, if you wish, uh, and and be invited at some point to to share it. If you don't, if you don't, just go ahead and interject, which is fine too. Um, I've always really admired um, the ways in which you two um, collaborate, the, the many ways. And, um, and you know, Sheila, maybe you have comments, anything to build upon what Bruce has said, or I'll carry on with, with the many other questions that I have. I think you said it pretty well. You can just keep on moving. Okay. I, um, I'm thinking about artist residencies and um, the experiences that you've had with that. Most recently, I think at McCall in 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 Charlotte, um, North Carolina. I know that was a really interesting time, shaped by a surge of demonstrations um, and violence toward Africans and African Americans. And if I recall, you went to that residency to focus on creating your work and found yourself to be in the midst of this national vortex, this um, of demonstrations and. Um, I wonder how that experience affected you um, and contrast it with your, you know, typical life around the Spinard studio. And one of the reasons why I ask that is because um, this time has often been compared to sort of like a residency time. You and I have talked about how people refer to this time of sheltering in being like a sustained artist residency. And I wonder if you think that that's true for you and, and if not, why in, 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 uh, in the context of my own experience around residencies? But I, I saw that phrase on Facebook, you know, where we are all artists in residence now. And I just sort of like that, that notion. And, um, and it did initially make me kind of uh, see my own studio with fresh eyes, just like when you go to a residency you're walking into a space you haven't been to before, and you know it's all fresh, it's all new. So um, in that regard, it, it it kind of it kind of suited um, the way uh, my studio has typically been um, kind of uh, not isolating, but but it's just been I, I, I'm. I don't have a lot of people around my studio normally. You know, my day-to-day -day is, is pretty, pretty solitary. But um, what I've noticed with my studio now, as it was with the McCall residency and with the Bunnell residency, is that there are a lot more people involved. Uh, the digital life during COVID, like right at this moment, there's just a lot more digital people in my life than in the studio than what I'm used to. And that's been a really big change. Um, the, the other thing of what happened at McCall, it, you know, where you, you're just sort of going along, going along, and suddenly this big uh, movement comes in. And it wasn't, it wasn't just the Black Lives Matter um, uh, demonstrations that were going on. We also had a hurricane. I got to see Michelle Obama while I was there. I mean, there was just like a whole bunch of, of moving, big moving parts to both um, absorb and to try to process and to sort of work through. So, so in that regard, you know, when I'm in my studio now, I'm not only processing um, all, how my digital life has, is now inside my studio, which is uh, my digital social life is now inside my studio, which it really hasn't been that much before. But I'm also, you know, doing all of my research from inside my studio, like keeping up on world events and all of that inside the studio. So it's, it's all, everything is now constricted into, you know, 1200 square feet, so to speak, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it, it's just interesting how um, 
you know, what's surfacing for artists who are working in the studio and maneuvering around, like, as you say, different social um, interfaces in the context of a, you know, a, a bigger international change in the way studio residencies seem to be taking place. I mean, there have been increasing um, pressures and opportunities around social engagement, but that old model of being kind of isolated and being very independent and um, maybe preferably impenetrable has really shifted. Mm -hmm. And and now, if everybody's in residence during COVID-19, it's, it's really about how to be connected in residence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and I, I kind of go back and forth on that to a certain degree. I'm, I'm used to, you know, being more on my own. So it's been an adjustment to, to in a sense, have so many people inside my studio. Um, I've had to, I, I read a, an article from MIT that was initially all introverts when, when the hunker down phase started, it's like, yeah, we've got this. We, we know how to do this. This will be great. But then because everything had to be done from, from <coughs> one's own space, uh, introverts aren't doing so well after all because, because there's, no, there's no division line between you know, being on one's own and, and being with other people now. That all those spaces have bled together and it's, it's, it's wearing. It's wearing on those of us who are used to being alone. Shannon has a question. Shannon, we're so happy you could be with us. Would you be willing to unmute your mic and just chime in here? Um, I will just start by saying how wonderful it is to see your faces. And thank you, Sheila, Bruce, and Asia, for doing this and letting us be part of the family again. Um, so I, I've been thinking a lot about how this is going to um, create a moment for radical change within the arts moving forward. I think in the past, we've judged our value by the number of people we can bring together. Um, I think the field has increasingly moved towards community engagement. And I think that um, those things are going to change. Um, I think about like 10 years ago, we were starting to have conversations about changes in arts participation and people wanting to access things online and, you know, oh, we did, can't do that. We blah, blah, blah. And like almost instantly, everyone moved their stuff online and are coming up with really creative ways to engage with community, to create and present work in different ways. So I guess I'm just curious what the two of you are thinking about um, as you as you look at what our future might be. Go, Bruce. All I know is that this it apparently takes a really, really major external force to speed up the process of change. A process that might have been inevitably going to unfold anyway. And I'm thinking of just on a lot of fronts, not just within the arts, but just across like a lot of different, um, <clears throat> just kind of social realms. Um, I think our civilization, our society, whatever you want to call it, I think, uh, is going to be forever altered by what we are all just going through right now. I don't think it's too fruitful to try to predict exactly how that those changes are going to look, but but it's pretty certain that that they will come about. And the interesting things about it are that it this is what it takes to speed up the rate of change, a rate, a, 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 and even when there are changes that seemed already to many of us to be pretty much inevitable. Um, they may, this timeline might have been shortened considerably by them. And when it comes to the arts, that's just a harder area, I think, to predict. I'm sure a lot of people, a lot smarter than me, are sitting around thinking about it and futurists are, are coming up with all sorts of, of, of ideas about how it's going to change. But here's what I do know. There's a great big bubble of thinking and imaginative 
uh, labor and work, intellectual and probably physical as well, that we that has been building up and 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 amassing during this period of time, and we have only probably seen just the tiniest little tip of that iceberg, and most of it is still waiting to kind of explode into existence or at least into view. What it's going to look like, I'm super excited to find out, but I, I don't want to be in the business of trying to, to, to guess what it's going to be. I just know that there have been a lot, there's a cumulative huge number of unexpected free time that artists and creators have had that is absolutely going to result in some really large scale uh, upsurge of, of interesting work across probably all disciplines. And, and it'll be just interesting. It'll take a while before we really, I think, see and understand, you know, what, it, what it's all going to entail and look like. But it's going to be fascinating. I, I think there's some uh, uh, pressure points that are going to push what Bruce is talking about through uh, possibly quicker than what would normally be, which is, you know, both artists and institutions have to survive. They've got to figure out how to survive in this new environment. And, and so uh, that, that survival instinct will, will push both ends, the institutional end and the individual artist end, um, push, push them to try to come up with things. And I think there's going to be a lot of uh, gestures at first, trying stuff out, because I'm not quite sure. I know for, for me personally, I don't know what, what are the best solutions for that. Um, so I think the sooner uh, both ends just start, trying out things and seeing what what clicks and what doesn't that that'll probably be the way to to learn like oh this is what'll work for us you know rather than trying to wait and figure out what is the best way just to start trying things out I have a you oh go ahead yeah and it's, it's regarding all institutions art education um and that is i see a becoming disconnected from the world, just even before this happened. And now what we've done is we inhabit this space of virtual world that is the new normal. And I can see the economics of it and institutions wanting to take advantage of it and us having even less human to human contact and human to environmental contact. Um, that it, it has become um, more convenient and um, economical to have conferences online uh, rather than in person. So this, this is just one piece that I can see that they can mm. Hey, I, Asia? Yeah. Uh, I, I couldn't quite hear all of what Cheryl said. Could you just sort of repeat or encapsulate that? If I, if I'll try, just the way that institutions may attempt to take advantage of the changes and diminish that human to human presence and interaction that's so valuable at conferences as things move online. So there's just a, a kind of um, diminishment of the, the value of humans being together in the ways that are, that are physical and familiar to us as we just migrate more and more towards these digital spaces. Mm -hmm. yeah, that yeah, would, go ahead. I, oh, Karen, no, I want to hear Karen's question. <laughs> it's going to be more interesting than what I was going to say. Well, Karen has a question, but it might not be really related. And I just want to see first if either of you have a response or concern that relates to Cheryl's observation. Yeah, I'm interested in Cheryl's question, too. That, you mean the, the difference between things all going digital versus the human the human contact especially in the arts where there's scarcity actually um, in the art yeah where there's scarcity economically you know for arts institutions and so they have to parse out their currency um, very carefully as art institutions have scarce resources and they parse them out 
carefully, will that create less actual opportunities for artists to be together and, and work in person and meet in person? I, I think we're on virus time now. You know, I don't know. Um, I don't know what it looks like afterwards, but I just don't see that um, we can get together right now. So what do we do in the, the interim? Now, whether that becomes a habit and we don't get back together afterwards, that's a concern of mine. Yeah, um, but uh, at this point, I do feel like I'm just in a sort of waiting mode in that regard, you know. I'm bowing to the virus, you know. That, um, I would like to just go back to Bruce's observation that during this um, time, there was, you know, kind of like a, a buildup of um, artistic energy and productivity. And I wonder if you feel that to be true. Is this a time of productivity for you, Sheila? And I may be interpreting Bruce's comment incorrectly, but is it a time of productivity for you or do you feel um, a little bit more like um, a person who's overwhelmed and even exhausted as many artists have observed that they're, they're doing so much processing of these changes, it's been incredibly difficult actually to get work done on the physical level. Uh, in the, studio. During the, the first hunker down phase, I did kind of feel like I had the bends, you know, that decompression sickness as I just trying to get my orientation because, you know, I'm used to working alone and just having all of society suddenly be like me just seemed really weird. And I, I wasn't, it was all in my head, but, but I was kind of grappling with that. So I cleaned the studio. I, I just did a, like a bunch of manual stuff, which is good for me to kind of, let let everything sort of catch up inside myself and then but pretty quickly after after I went through that process then it was just sort of like boom there was just a bunch of stuff like I've got I'm working on three different series right now you know all inside the studio um, you can't even tell I clean the studio like I told you earlier Asia this is a very selective view because it, it literally looks like a bomb went off in my studio at the moment. It, it's like, there's just work all over the place. So I, I haven't felt the, the waiting that I'm describing is, is something that I'm just, I'm just aware of, but it's not causing me um, myself, my own, my own work methods, it's not causing me to wait. You know, I'm not hampered in that way. Karen, do you want to? Um... I got to do the unmute thing. Can you hear me? Yeah, Karen. Yeah. Hi, everybody. It's so good to see your faces, first of all. Yes. I'm far away. <laughs> um, I am really curious about your thoughts since we're in this period where everything has been arrested and there are systems collapsing. What of those systems are you noticing having a direct impact on artists in the creative sector? Does that make sense? And maybe not so much what is collapsing, but what what is collapsing in a way that's going to affect big changes down the pike? Other than this digital landscape, that's one thing, but well, I'm, I'm concerned for um, artists in the same way I'm kind of concerned for a lot of people that are self-employed, you know, uh, how are they, how are they going to survive? You know, how, how are some of these systems that are in place now, like, you know, the unemployment insurance that even self-employed can get, you know, uh, up here in Alaska, they're still having to wait like four or five weeks. And I'm, I'm, I'm in a very fortunate position for myself, but, but you know, there was a time when I certainly wasn't and I would be really hurting right now if, um, if I was still sort of hand to mouth. So I'm, I'm concerned for the, for 
individual artist welfare, knowing that some of these systems that have supposedly been set up aren't really working yet? And how are they, how are they getting by? I mean, it's got to be, I, I, this would be a fascinating kind of just ongoing discussion. And I imagine there'll be threads of it that'll, you know, continue and both in Alaska and among our kind of, you know, known Alaskan artists, networks and so on, and, and, and around the country and the world, but about this, but I don't, again, I just feel like it's going to be really hard to predict that, Karen. I, I think there'll be really good things. I think I think that's the thing about it is that, and this is just probably this is going to sound really cliche, but <clears throat> whenever whenever systems are challenged structurally, like they are being right now, uh, the weaknesses of those systems get exposed really fast, and you know we're seeing that. You know, just I mean, one very obvious, but really kind of scary and fascinating example is who knew that the global economic system was as brittle as it turns out to be. That was a, that was something I think that probably some people had given a fair amount of consideration to, but there was no way to really uh, know for sure until a major stress test was underway, which is what we're going through right now is a major stress test of all kinds of systems. And the weaknesses will cause pillars to fall out of those structures and the structures to lean different ways and some of them will fall down. But the thing is, they probably, if they're that weak and that brittle and that un, unelastic to be able to adapt and change to changes that are, that are underway, then it's probably the sooner we get rid of them, the better kind of situation. And that, you know, new and innovative ways of, 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 um, of, of people coming together. And this kind of goes back to Cheryl's question. Like, sure, I imagine for, um, for a while, um, there's going to be a definite tendency for a lot of reasons, just because of the shrinking resource base that that there is kind of to work with there's going to be a tendency to 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 really contract on all kinds of fronts but i don't see that lasting too long because i just don't think that's because for one thing that is not a solution this this conversation that we're having right now i i'm i'm really grateful for uh the leadership and energy that Benel um has as a leader in statewide and um, among artists and, 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 and you being kind of a major thought leader, Asia, to be, you know, to pull this together. I'm really grateful that you have. I think it's really important that we stay in contact with each other and so on, but this isn't the solution for the future of artists, you know, networking and conversation having, you know what I mean? Um, it's an interim solution. It's the one that's close, you know, that's, that, that's doable right now. And, and we'll see. Uh, but Karen, I guess I'm worried, but I'm also really hopeful. I, I think, um, I think a lot of the things that, 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 that we became accustomed to relying on, we probably shouldn't have been so reliant upon. And now we know. Uh, you know, I'm also thinking about the fact that um, in, you know, in the past many years, Alaska's place has really shifted from the periphery of, um, you know, various global conversations to the center with the shrinking polar ice cap and, um, you know, Alaska's oil dependency, you know, and, and how that sort of reverberates through national policy. Um, and as that is happening, it's also really interesting to think about how COVID has really shut down New York and shut down things that characterize New York's resources, a, a gathering place, a place of theater, a place of groups of people getting together and doing phenomenal creative um, things. And so now our open spaces, I mean, right now, you know, we're in a transition of the governor's reopening Alaska already, far ahead of many other places in this country. And um, I say that, you know, with um, concern and, and trepidation, but at the same time, you know, Benel is cautiously reopening. People will be allowed in in small numbers, wearing masks, maintaining distance, 
um, and a lot of sanitary uh, protocols. And one of the key reasons for that is that, you know, artists need to make money. We have to, um, you know, we have to, we're here to support them, but also we're here to support residencies and things that could be happening, you know, perhaps sooner than they will in other spaces. So I'm interested to see how the rural and how the far flung begin to play more centrally into creative conversations in the future. It's, a, it's another major turn, as I see it, in the um, environmental and economic landscape of our country. Because while on certain spaces that are more affordable, we'll see growth like we're starting to see in the Midwest with the incredible innovations of cities like um, Cleveland and Detroit, you know, because of affordability and a kind of urban homesteading that can happen through in those disinvested properties where artists come in. Now, you know, really rural spaces could actually become different kinds of cultural capitals. Perhaps. Um, I, I, just about that. Yeah, that might be one of those things that that we were already on a trajectory towards. Um, that is the the process between of of getting there may be really radically speeded up um, as a result of this and other things to come. I mean, I don't think we should think about. I mean, this this pandemic and the and all of the associated experiences around it, it's definitely a thing. But but I think the I think the main thing that we that we know about things is, is that they don't happen for a reason. And that doesn't mean though that we can't extract uh um implications from them and i think that's kind of what we're all all in the process of doing and um and it it, it it's going to be interesting to see how funders and and institutions see their role in the reshaping of the landscape that artists are going to be functioning within because um i and what i'm hoping is is that that um that they they don't feel a need to necessarily take the lead on figuring that out. Um, I, I, I'm hoping that one of the things that will kind of, um, one of the ways in which we'll sort of turn is we'll be looking in a direction of, of institutions taking the, following the lead of, of individual artists and, and, and being more open to, to uh, adapting their structures and processes. I mean, why not? Because I mean, the, the, those structures and processes are hard to change when everything's just sort of going along status quo, but they're a lot easier to change when all of a sudden they've been like shaken up and rattled. It seems like it's easier to take a part out and put in another one in, in, a, in a situation like that. And, and, and that may be one of the silver linings. Um, Clark, I wanted to call on you to share your musings about the silver linings department. Are you willing to speak up? Um, I'm unmute. There we go. Clark, um, do you want to talk about something you said if there's anything good happening lately? I'm not sure there was really a question there. It's more of an observation and uh, just putting it out there. Um, you said drastically cleaned up air and water. I'd heard we could expect a propaganda campaign to deny all of that, but it doesn't seem so. I hope we can keep thinking about it. What amounts to a vivid glimpse of a bygone world that we've taken for granted? Yeah, yeah. I just... Uh, you know, I, I read something about that and saw some um, some pictures of Los Angeles without smog and then just walking around uh, out, outside. It's it's amazing even here compared to just a few months ago. And it's um, for people that are concerned about, you know, the fate of the world and uh, what's been happening with um, 
uh, climate change and so forth. It's, um, I think it sort of shows that uh, um, maybe we could actually do something about this and the whole thing isn't completely hopeless, you know? It's, it's kind of a demonstration of that almost. It, it, it's sort of like, um, you know, the, the daily horror of what's happening is a, that helps to temper it a little bit and it kind of suggests that uh it, you know uh, maybe we should lose a little bit of the cynicism and try to like um actually do something to address what's happening to the planet more it i, I mean it, it, all that probably sounds like totally flaky and flighty and unrealistic but um sure has been interesting to to observe the conditions Absolutely. Um, I've heard that it would take 25 years of sustained um, suspensions of normal uh, human activities to restore the Earth's equilibrium for perpetuity. Yeah. But it's still an excellent point. And it could mean that if things got really terrible in some respects, they could become improved in others. Um, thinking about um, other positive impacts of um, these times, including sheltering at home. Um, Bruce, you've, you've um, talked a bit and been vocal on social media about restructuring your life uh, somewhat lately um, while sheltering at home. Could you talk a little bit about that, describe what you've been doing and how um, things like the presidential briefings um, have impacted you. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, for me, and I'm lucky, I feel really privileged. And then, you know, and I don't mean just in the usual sense of, you know, being like a white male baby boomer and all of the and all of the positive baggage that comes along with that. I, I, I feel really privileged just because of my current situation to be able to experience this time just kind of on an hourly basis and, and wake up every day really not knowing what kind of mood I, I'm, I'm gonna be in. I think everybody's experiencing this phenomenon that I've labeled, I've, call, I've been calling COVID brain during this whole, period of time and everybody's experiencing it differently but one thing i've noticed is that friends that have a that that have been able to maintain or have been required to maintain a kind of regular work like structure day job type structure they're experiencing it a little bit differently than those of us who who's to have to kind of fashion our own structures and 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 um uh to, to, to you know to kind of build our days around we have to like provide that for ourselves i'm in that category and it's been a profound effect every day um i i wake up not quite knowing what i'm going to do but also what sort of mood i'm going to be in and it and it shifts really radically and i've just kind of been going with it it's been interesting my dream life is absolutely a blaze and i don't really want to particularly go into my dream life specifically, but oh my God, I've, it's just like I'm, I'm nothing I've ever experienced and I'm really old. Um, but as far as the briefings, you know, I, 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 I don't wanna go into that very much because most of the people listening to this at this point probably have no idea what we're talking about. But I, I started writing little, um, little short synopses of the daily White House briefings just because I got sort of addicted to watching them and I thought they were fascinating. But the reason I decided to respond to them really had to do with the fact that I'm just quite disturbed and weary of all of the by and uh, disturbed by and weary of the amount of like hatred and dehumanization that's just actively pouring into our uh into our conversations uh from every from every side and and um and it's it's not helpful um i get why people are angry i get angry too um but you know really when something's really awful probably 
you know, humor and, and, and the comic side of the human condition is something that we should just remember and honor. And I just, I, I just kind of decided that that was going to be my, my response to those white house briefings that most people found impossible to endure. Um, and, and, and wanted to avoid, I was actually oddly attracted deeply to them. <laughs> and, and because they did sort of remind me that, uh, that, you know, if we can't embrace or at least honor the sort of comedic side of human existence, then we're sort of screwed. That's all I really have to say about the, my response to the daily White House coronavirus briefing. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, this, is, this has been a, a great time. I'd love to hear everybody's story. I wish we had time to just go down the through the rows and and just ask everybody to weigh in on this can you just keep this going like can you do it like all day every day for the next period of time and just give everybody a chance to talk because i will i really want to hear what everybody thinks about all this stuff I, I definitely become sort of a zoom junkie i'll admit it but i think that the next scheduled time will be next week <laughs> and it's really important that that everybody who does want to share speaks up in this in this kind of forum. But before you um, um, sort of finish your little section here about uh, how you've responded to this time, I know that there's more than watching the briefings that you've been up to. What other sort of ritual or structural changes have you kind of metabolized during this time, Bruce? Because I know you have taken it extraordinarily positively and constructively. And I wonder if you would talk some more about other things you've well, been doing. We're, we're running out of time and I don't, I don't want to take all the last time, but I'll just say a couple of quick things in, cause I, I could talk about that for a long time, but yeah, I, I, I feel like I have, I, I've, I've had a lot of open ended time. Um, you know, I, I've, uh, I've imposed a, a, a regular workout routine on myself. That's been really helpful keeping my brain from just completely, you know, spinning out of control. Um, uh, but a, a big thing that's happened is, is that um, mostly I've just been, I've had a lot of time to think and, and to kind of revisit questions that I think is one of them, one of which has been kind of a fundamental question that all Alaskan artists have spent time thinking about. And that is like, is there something universal about the experience of being an, an artist, specifically in Alaska? We, we, we've been talking about that forever. I mean, um, anybody that spent any time up here and has really been part of the artist community in Alaska has, has, has grappled with that. And of course we know that we all come with different sets of experience. We either emanate from the, the colonizer uh, uh, class or the colonized uh, peoples and those experiences are different and they can't be, we can't assume that they're, that they can be universalized necessarily at all. So what, what, what is it that we have in common across all of these different identities and so on? And, and I used to think that it was that, that we worked in this big, huge open space and the distance between ourselves was so great that it had a tendency to kind of miniaturize our interior lives and that that's why artists were so kind of in in alaska were so interiorly and internally focused i've found that since i can't i have been unable to spend much time outside of the strictures of my own you know immediate physical environment it turns out that 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 has had a tendency to cause me to actually think much, much, much bigger and and enlarge and, and expand my thought processes on a regular basis to think of more like meta systemic dynamics instead of like what's going on like right here and now in my own uh, world. And that's been kind of fascinating. I don't know where that's going to lead me as a human and as an artist, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm all of that and an exercise bicycle and some really good cooking that you occasionally send images impulse, of piling up on your deck out. Best, Im best impulse buy I ever made was that damn stationary buy. <laughs> I'm that. Great. Sheila, do you have any um, thoughts and response to, to Bruce's about, you know, um, um, shifts or um, silver linings or or not? 
for me, there's just been a lot of uh, information. There, there, there's a there's this period where I've been trying to like really think about the next twenty years, you know, and and how do what do I want to change? And I've been thinking about the next twenty years for like the last ten years, you know, and um, trying to provide myself a better structure as an artist or, you know, um, uh, just better habits and all of that. And this, this uh, isolation period, this hunker down period has allowed me to try out some stuff. It's allowed me to really focus on that to a certain degree. And I've gotten a lot of information back personally um, from doing that. Most of it is bad information. It's like, Oh, I'm really bad at this, bad at making changes and all that. But that's, that's very useful. You know, it's, it's good information to have so that I can begin to think about, well, if I can't do it this way, if I can't get the structure I'm looking for this way, maybe I need to like tweak it and try, you know, go at it from a different angle. So, so yeah, it's been more for me, it's been more about um, internal personal growth changes that I've been wanting to make for a while. And and how successful am I at doing that during this time? You've always taken a remarkably curious and receptive attitude towards major challenges as I see it. So interesting. Well, I'm from the Midwest. We, uh, we, we kind of gloat over like having bad news, you know, it's like, yay, sort of thing, so. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things probably that a lot of us have also experienced is that we're learning a lot more about our own individual coping mechanisms. Am I not right, wrong about that? Um, and, you know, I've, I've kind of, I know now what my daily coping mechanisms consist of and which ones are, you know, which ones are, you know, work and which ones don't and which ones, you know, uh, need need work and all of that it's been interesting one of the great things though has been distractions learn the value of distractions michael our good friend michael walsh has provided us with some really rich um distractive opportunities in the form of a bunch of experimental films that as uh curator at the walker he's he's been able to provide and just seen some lovely lovely things just to kind of let your just to like take you out of the you know, the tension of, of, of real life. It's been wonderful. Things like that. I appreciate people who've done that. And, and I'm also learning just really odd bits of information. Like I have discovered that I, I am a sort of person that can go three weeks without interaction, like physical interaction other than Bruce, but with other people for three weeks, I'm fine. And then I wake up on uh, day 22 and it's just an awful day. And it took me forever to figure out. It's like, oh, I'm just sort of mad and grumpy now because I can't actually in interact with anybody on, at a physical level. I can't go over to somebody's house or I can't invite them over here. And, and once I figured that out, it took me almost all day to figure it out. It's like, God, why am I so mad today? And, and once I figured it out, it's like, oh, okay. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a three-week person you know, and then I'm done. So I just had to like go, okay, I just have to reset and get ready to do another three weeks. And then I was fine. But it's just like weird information like that comes along from, from this period for me. It's always so great to, to talk with you too. And, um, and I really appreciate that perspectives that others who've uh, shared their questions have offered today. Looking forward so much to continuing the conversation next week. As you know, everybody's in, invited back. And um, I just really wanna thank Bruce and Sheila, especially for um, being willing for so many years in my life to entertain uh, you know, some challenging um, challenging thoughts and, and um, situations with, um, with really luminous minds. When can we all come so, to Homer? 
I've got a B and B that just basically doesn't have a reservation for the whole summer. So <laughs> <laughs> now we're talking. Yeah. Come on, yeah. Let's all go to Homer. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Come on, Jane. You know, we're gonna every year in May we make our pilgrimage to Alaska and it's always way too brief. And we're extremely bummed that we're not going to get to come and see all of you wonderful people. And we always make a beeline for Homer. And um, we are not letting go of our dream of buying a little cabin out in Homer one of these days when we can swing it. So we just, we love all of you guys so much. It's so wonderful to be here with you today. Cheryl, Cheryl has the... Um, has Fairbanks canceled the annual Solstice Baseball Classic? <laughs> no, no. Would you look into that? <laughs> yeah. Cheryl's sheltering in, in in Mexico. We'll definitely have her on one of these. Ooh, that's that's awesome. Okay. okay. Well, it's great to see everybody. I really have enjoyed this. Thank you so much. Yeah. yeah. Nice to Great see. to see you all. Thanks so much. Uh, so next week, um, Carla Cope and Amy Meisner. Yeah. This time. Wow. Thank you. Thanks so much, everybody.